I do have a question, though. How many of you are coffee drinkers? They're right here, just coffee drinkers. Yeah, well, pretty bold and brave, yeah. Mm-hmm. How many of you are not coffee drinkers? The hands went up faster. You're proud of that. You're in a minority, but you're, you're quite proud of that this morning. Yeah. How many of you used to be coffee drinkers, but you're a part of the 140 people involved in Financial Peace University, and you've sworn off Starbucks to save some money? And yeah, there we go. Oh, Debbie. Let's hear it for Debbie. Yes. (laughs) Debbie, you can't listen to this. If you want to be nice to a second grade teacher, buy her a $5 Starbucks card and give give her a treat this week. All right. Well, I recently was meeting one of my friends at Starbucks, and uh, I got there, and he was on his way, and I, I uh, made a call, and I said, hey, let me order for you. What do you want? And he said, oh, that would really be nice. And he started the order thing. I mean, it was another language. I finally just said, just text it to me. And I got the text. It filled three text frames. Uh, so I just took it up to the barista, and I, I showed it to her, and she just, you know, put it all, and he wanted a vente, which is a good thing, because the entire side of the cup was just filled with hieroglyphics here of his specific order. I don't know, it was a hot, extra hot, frap, mocha, no whip, you know, skinny, extra, three shot, this, eight shot, that, it, half this, it was unbelievable. I don't know what it was, but I do know that when he got it, what he did, he sat down, like it was a ritual. And he sat down and he closed his eyes and he took a sip. And it was like he was going to heaven. (laughs) There were groanings too deep to be uttered. There was just a kind of a groan that came out. And he said, it's perfect. It's perfect. (laughs) It doesn't take much to please some men. I understand. I know how it is. The Bible tells us this, that God only gives perfect gifts. In fact, it was said about Jesus, he does everything well. But have you noticed that when women and men get their hands on things, particularly spiritual and religious things, that we tend to confuse it and mix it and complicate it? And the story that we're going to read today from Galatians chapter 2 is, while happening almost 2,000 years ago, is as fresh as if it happened yesterday. The story of God's amazing grace and how we can so complicate things. This is the third weekend in an eight-part series as our teaching team is going through Galatians and started two weeks ago by talking with us in chapter 1 about only one message in this series of living life forward, the one big message of gospel or good news. And last week, Isaac talked with us about being pleasers of God first rather than pleasers of people. And we have this great story today in Galatians chapter 2 about two great leaders in the early church struggling together about what it really meant to be people moving forward in God's amazing grace. Have you ever been with a couple that kind of starts fighting and bickering while you're there? Have you had that experience? Is it awkward or what? You just kind of blush and you feel a little anxiety coming on and you just kind of want to quietly creep outside of the room and say that two of you can have your chat but leave me out of it. As we read from Galatians 2 today, we're actually drug into the room 
with one of those embarrassing fights. You might almost kind of blush. You may, like me, wish that you could leave. You may have preferred that the Holy Spirit left this story out. It's not a comfortable thing to see two great pillars of the faith, leaders of the church, apostles, fighting in public about something. It must have been the grandest of issues for them to have had this conversation. The first of three things I want to notice with you is weak faith, which is weak grace, which is grace that isn't strong enough for some reason. The formula would be grace plus fill in the blank with whatever. Weak grace. Let's take a look at Acts 1 and Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll read. When Peter came to Antioch, I, this is Paul writing, opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. That's the end of Act 1. We'll pick it up in just a moment as we read forward. But we're seeing here about weak grace. Grace that has to have something added to it. What would be an issue big enough for Paul to take Peter on in public, in a public fight? It would be about the grace of God and the central message of the gospel of Christ, that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, justified by Christ alone, without adding certain religious customs to that. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and acting out another. The word hypocrisy shows up three times in our text. It's Peter saying one thing. We are right with God by faith in Christ alone and acting another way. But it's really better. You'll actually be a superior Christian if you add some religious practices to it as well. And so the story is unfolded this way. Paul, who had started these churches in Galatia, is now writing to them and telling them this story that they hadn't personally experienced, that had happened earlier at the church of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were two of the leaders and members of the teaching team at the Antioch church, and Peter came north from Jerusalem to kind of check things out. James was the presiding elder, as far as we know, in the mother church in Jerusalem, and may well have suggested to Peter that he'd go up to Antioch and check things out. Peter was likely going to be back home to Jerusalem to give a report. When Peter arrived on the scene, he embraced everyone, this wonderful church, of diverse backgrounds in every way, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, culturally, socially, but primarily fell out into two large groups. There were those who were Jews by religious and ethnic 
background and heritage. They had their own culture and they had their own religious practices that were very meaningful to them. And then there were those of us who were Gentile by background, had probably come from a variety of different kinds of religious beliefs and practices. But what made this congregation unified was that everyone agreed that we are saved by faith through Christ alone. And that was the unifying factor. So when Peter came to town, he was happy to hang out with all the Gentile believers in Jesus and all the Jewish Christ followers that had embraced their Messiah that had been promised for millennia before, and it was one big happy party. Until some of his buddies from Jerusalem came up, and he was concerned about the report that they would send home to Peter or to James and others. And so Peter, who had hung out with the Gentile folks, kind of began to give them the cold shoulder. And he began to associate just with the Jewish Christ followers. And when Peter did that, this pillar of the faith, this apostle that had followed Jesus physically and personally did that, other Jewish believers began avoiding these folks over here in our wonderful church. And then even Barnabas, who had previously been a mentor for Paul, joined as well. And suddenly we had two classes of people in the church those who believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and those who believed in grace plus some religious tradition and practice. And Paul decided that that was worth fighting over. God's amazing grace cannot be weakened with a formula that says it's grace plus something else. What's worth fighting over? Last Sunday's Oregonian had a very interesting article about several churches in our greater area. Some of them, one sister church of ours, and many of the churches, very complimentary article. But I quote about one of those. I think you'll find this interesting. One church, it says, had dwindled and was facing closure. But by wrestling, processing, praying, and meeting, the congregation recreated itself with a clear mission, and the attendance has grown. We are very postmodern in theology, says the pastor. Christianity is our story, but we don't think it's the only valid story. So the messages draw from the Bible and the Quran and Buddhist sacred writings. End quote. Interesting, isn't it? There are matters of theology, who God is and what we believe about him and how we relate to God that are critically important. I think Paul found one of those. There's, of course, other kinds of matters. There's other issues in churches, aren't there? There's issues of practice and culture. Churches of my heritage, for example, had great disagreements and actually congregations and even whole groups of the denomination divided over the years over issues like whether or not they should pay pastors. A fun one to fight about, huh? Don't you wish you had that problem? Mm, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whether or not women could cut their hair and what kind of cloth they needed to have on their head during worship services and times of prayer and, and where women should sit during services. Interesting stuff. How we should practice what the Bible tells us to do with the holy kiss and with foot washing. And then there were all kinds of rules that really messed with kids like me. I mean, there's stuff about, you know, cards and dancing and movies. And uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. And then us little boys grew up with the maxim, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go out with girls that... You were there too, weren't you? 
Yeah. As I was a teenager, I did, did a little bit of church history in that denomination to discover that three generations before, all the elders in those churches did drink, smoke, and chew, and most of them brewed and raised their own. I could not figure out how I was born after my time. I just did not know how that had happened. We all have our preferences and our, our practices. In fact, churches are, have interesting conversations about how we handle Scripture, God's Word. There are those that say, we believe in exegetical preaching. We just take it verse by verse and we just go through it. Kind of like what we're doing in Galatians right now. Exegetical. And you say, why would you do that? Well, because that's how the Holy Spirit inspired it. That's pretty compelling, isn't it? Yeah. Then there's churches that say, we're topical. Well, why would you give topical messages? Because that's how Jesus taught. Really? Yeah, check it out. Well, Jesus wasn't a bad preacher. That's, not a, that's a pretty compelling issue. Then there are those who say, we don't do the exegetical thing. We're not primarily topical. We're situational. We look at where people are living life and see what the Holy Spirit is prophetically speaking to us of God's truth in that situation. Why would you do that? That's how the Apostle Paul preached. Interesting. So I have to decide between the Holy Spirit and Jesus and Paul now, right? And many do. In fact, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. It's human nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's talking to them about their divisiveness. And he's saying, and some of you have actually factioned off. And you said, I'm of, I'm of Paul. And others are, I'm of Apollos. And others, I'm of Peter. And then there's some of you that are super spiritual. You say, we're just of Christ. We're, we're the little Christ faction over here. Very easy for us to be divided about those kinds of things. Or maybe there's practices, cultural, cultural icons that are very useful for some of us in worship, like crosses or altars or chancels or choirs or vestments or icons or pipe organs or rock bands or, or none of those becomes our cultural icon and preference and artifact. We have all kinds of preferences regarding ministry program and personality of leaders and style of the way we do things and how financial decisions are made and how those are reported and how we're organized in terms of leadership. Music as part of our worship, which can be such a beautiful, unifying thing for a diverse group of people, is often a breeding ground for swarms of irritating mosquitoes that we're constantly swatting aside because we have such different cultural, musical preferences. All of these differences, and we ask the question along these preferences, what is it really that is worth fighting over? The Apostle Paul in this text makes it very clear, doesn't it? Where he decided that the battle lines were so significant, the stakes were so high, that he would take on his peer and friend and pillar in the faith, Peter, and say, publicly, you are a hypocrite because you're taking the grace of God and you're adding something else to that. That's nothing more than weakened grace. Which brings us to Act 2 as we read on, which is God's amazing grace. Faith in Christ alone. Let's look beginning at verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I've destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Amazing grace. Faith in Christ alone. I visited a dying man this week. He's very lucid and alert, conducts remarkable and stimulating conversations. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with him, but he knows he's on a path toward physical death. In our conversation, he said, you know, Jared, he said, I believe that at the end of the day, it's all about being a good enough person. Hmm. Now, I like to be an agreeable person. And so I agreed with him. Absolutely. Right off the bat. I looked at him and smiled and I said, I think I agree with you. That at the end of the day, it is about being good enough. But I said, you and I both have a serious problem. Because I'm not good enough. I don't think you're good enough. Because I don't think anyone's good enough. In fact, God said it very clearly to us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I did say to him, but there's one exception, one man, Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived life perfectly, and he is good enough. The perfect demonstration of a life of God's righteousness lived on earth. And we know the story that's come out of that one man, Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Jesus Christ, perfect son of God, perfect man, died on a cross, was buried, and in three days rose again to now give forgiveness and to make intercession for us. That's the heart of the good news message. None of us are good enough, but Jesus is good enough. Paul says it this way, our lives are hidden in Christ. That means all of the junk that I bring along gets tucked away in the forgiveness of Jesus as the Father looks at me. And for those of you who have accepted his gift of amazing grace for you as well. So how does God the Father look at Jesus? Luke tells us in chapter 3 that when Jesus was baptized in water and a dove came down, that there was a voice from heaven. And this was what the Father said. This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's what the Father says about Jesus. Now let's imagine, if your life is hidden in Christ, what does the Father say about you? So he says about Kathy, this is my child. You are family. That's what the Father says. And that may be God. Would you get it, whoever that is? 
Other than that, we won't take the call. But if that is God. He says about Roger. You are loved. That's what the message says. That's not my family, is it? Oh, that's my mother-in-law. Oh, Bonnie. Oh, Lord. Have mercy. Bonnie's lived with me for about 15 years, and anything she does to get back at me is more than deserved. It's just, it's more than deserved. So the father looks at Roger and he says, when I look at you, I love you. You are loved. And when the father, when the father comes across and looks at Dave, he says, I am well pleased. You've already won the prize, got the, passed the test, got the blue ribbon, got the A+. Lives hidden in Christ. That is amazing grace. You've noticed, haven't you, that there's this set on the platform? Did any of you not notice that there was some stuff behind you? Did, did any of you not notice? I don't see a hand here in the place. You know, I, uh, I saw this for the first time just a few hours before some of you did uh, three weeks ago. Because, uh, you know, I don't do this stuff. And there's a team here, and we meet, and we talk, and we pray about what we feel God wants us to be teaching about. And we came to Galatians, and we looked at the eight weeks, and we looked at the specific passages and divided it up among team members and had a specific general theme for the whole thing, living life forward, and specific themes for each of the weeks. And then that gets handed off to a, a creative team that helps us in some of the other more artistic communication. So I walk in the back here of the auditorium, and I look up there, and I thought to myself, my, 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 what is that? That's what I thought to myself. I thought, I think I need to turn the lights on. And then I did, and then I wanted to turn them off for a minute. I just thought, what, whoa, what is that? And very fun. That's what art does. Two weeks ago, Ann and I were in a gorgeous cathedral-like church building with the stained glass and the chancel and the, 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 the tables up front for the Eucharist and the pipe organs. And that architecture told us in artistic forms many, many stories about the gospel. Well, I looked at this one, and I thought, that's not stained glass. I wonder what kind of a story that one's going to tell us. And it was very fun that first weekend of having conversations with some of you and listening in to other conversations about what was evoked in you when you saw this stuff on the wall. I was talking with one of you, and it was very fun. He said, you know, I came in, and I took a look at that. I said, what is that? Is what I said. What is that? And then he said, as I began to just kind of think about it, as Anne began talking in Galatians, and I understood living life forward, and I, and I saw the, the forward button there and the arrow about moving forward with Christ, and I began to think to myself, this really is my life before Christ. This is what I bring to it in terms of brokenness and lack of alignment and damage and disconnectedness and pain that are there and awkwardness and confusion and misunderstanding in my life and relationships that are sideways. This is me. And then he said, I I begin to see that this is us. These are the churches of Galatia. This is the church at Corinth. This is the church at Evergreen. Coming from our different places of brokenness and disconnectedness and finding ourselves together. And then he saw, I saw the forward button. 
that in Christ we live life forward. And as we move forward in him, he brings meaning and purpose and healing and coordination in life. It's called transformation and sanctification as he brings the pieces together. That's amazing grace. He got on it. He got at that work of God's Spirit in bringing us more and more like Christ. But we make it so complicated sometimes. Bonnie, you and I are having a dialogue in this service this morning. So just for the rest of you, I'm going to tell one of your stories. Oh, she's just, oh. Oh, it's a good one. Bonnie, for several years, was director of nursing at a Bush hospital in northeastern or western Alaska. And uh, Bonnie told the stories about some of the folks in the church that she was regularly a part of there. Some of the people had a formula of being a Christian. And the formula was this. If I drank alcohol this week, I am not a Christian. So this is how it worked. Grace plus drinking equals not Christian. Therefore, they didn't attend worship service that weekend. Now, the formula worked the other way, too. Grace plus dry week equals Christian, and so they attended worship services on that weekend. Now, I have purposely chosen a religious formula in a little bit different cultural context to make it kind of safe and comfortable for us. If you want to make it less comfortable, bring the formula back into your life about what makes you a good or a bad Christian. Any religious formula that is grace plus something else makes me righteous cheapens God's amazing grace. Let me tell you when I first discovered that I was a religious person. I was eight years old. Are you ready, Jerry, for a fishing story? Here we go. You'll appreciate this. In fact, you're better than I am or you would have done the same thing. I was down on the back of the farm where I grew up. The Kalapuya River runs along there, and I was fishing one evening, and there was a trout that ate the worm off my hook. I mean, I had a bite. I was all excited, (sighs) reeled it in, and there was an empty hook. I put another worm on the hook, and I cast it out there. I knew right where that trout was, and it went down to the trout, and it nibbled away, and I was excited, and I reeled it in, ate the worm off. The third worm ate it off. Three times, didn't get the fish. Fish is still there. Fish is still eating. I decided it was time to bring God into my fishing experience. Hmm? So while I was putting on the fourth worm, I manned up with God, and we made a deal. You want to hear the deal? There's a deal. God, if you help me catch that fish, I will have a quiet time. Because I learned at church that was a good thing, personal, devotional, every day. I will have a quiet time every day for the next week. God was impressed. He helped me catch the fish. I manned up. I had a week of consistent quiet time. Whoopy, stinking, religious me. Grace plus my bargain with God equals I will come through for him if he comes through for me. Oh, that just reeks of religion doesn't it? Grace plus anything cheapens and weakens 
the amazing grace of God. That's why in two verses in that passage we just read, in two verses, four times Paul says, we are saved by faith in Jesus. We are saved by faith in Christ Jesus. We are being saved by faith in Christ. We are saved by faith in God. Four times in two verses because that's the central theme of what he is saying to these people It's not your religious plus, fill in the blank, added on, extra thing. It's by God's amazing grace in Christ alone. So what does in Acts 3, this living life forward in grace look like? Let's read our last two verses, verses 20 and 21. And if you memorize a verse a week, some of you do that. Uh, Verse 20 in chapter 2 would be a wonderful verse to memorize if you haven't. I committed it to memory as a kid. It served me well for life. Here it is. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Living life forward in amazing grace. So this is how life works for you as a believer in the triune God. This is your little theology uh, lesson for the week, okay? And what is theology? Theology is our proper understanding of God, how he relates to us and how we relate to him. By the way, if theology gets too complex, it's probably more complex than biblical theology. God did not try to make things hard for us. He tried to make things easy for us. It's why he became a man and lived among us to show the way. But every discipline. Every sphere of study has its shorthand words that are just filled and pregnant with meaning. Theology is the same way. Let's talk about how the God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit relates with us and sees you, and then we're going to conclude with an opportunity to respond to God's amazing grace in your life. When God, the Father, looks at you, he sees you as justified. One of the words that we read in our text It's kind of fun in English because you can make an appropriate play on words. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned, is how God the Father views us. And how can that possibly be? Because he says about you with your life hidden in Christ, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. When you come before your heavenly Father, you know that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus for sin in your life past, but you remember something that's happened. We all do this. There's that feeling of regret. Your face may flush for a moment. You may suck your breath in because there's still that, I wish I hadn't done that, that was harmful to me and others and God. And you begin to have a conversation with your heavenly father about that thing. It's as though he would say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. If you want to, you'll have to remind me about that. Because you are justified. Just 
as if I'd never sinned. This is what God's Word tells us, that He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, that He has buried our transgressions in the depths of the sea, and that He remembers your sins no more. Justified is how the Father sees you. You are my child, and I love you, and I have amazing grace for you. I am pleased. How does Jesus the Son view us? Jesus, God's Son, lived a perfect life, went to an unjust death on the cross, paid the capital price for our sin, came off of the cross, was buried three days, rose again, and now lives to forgive and make intercession for us. What does Jesus think about you today? Well, when he looks at your life and mine, he sees this wall. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he does something about it. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says us this, that Jesus is at the right hand of God where he stands to make intercession for you. What is an intercessor? It's someone who comes in your place and makes a plea on your behalf. The Bible tells us that the devil is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. The devil who could view your life and mine and see the junk and could say, how could you be a follower of Jesus? How could you be a Christian? How could you be saved? And you do that. Jesus stands as a defense attorney would before the throne of the Father and says, I see the sin. I saw the sin. And here are the scars of the spikes that were driven through my hands on the cross, shedding my blood. That sin's been paid for. No double jeopardy in this court. I intercede for her here. She is forgiven. Don't cheapen the grace of God. Let it be amazing grace where Jesus stands in for you and intercedes by his shed blood on your behalf. That's how Jesus the Son sees you. And what's the Holy Spirit up to? The Holy Spirit not only takes a look at our lives interior with all of their Various states of still yet to be assembled. Assembled, Our lives all do have those frightful words on them. Some assembly required. You've been there. You've seen the box. That's why we're the messy group that we are. Our lives are still being assembled. Because being forgiven by Jesus does not mean that everything's been put back together. It means that we now have the opportunity to be put back together. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, that we are being transformed into His, that's Jesus, into His likeness from glory to glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the big, powerful, beautiful word called sanctification. To sanctify, to make a saint out of, to sanctify means to bring into an orderliness 
that brings the same sanctity of God. To sanctify, to set it aside in his orderliness and holiness and righteousness and purpose. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And he is constantly working to bring together the broken pieces, to heal the wounded pain sources, to adjust the thinking of bad attitudes or negativity, to bring the mind of Christ, to help us with self-control, to discipline our emotions and our behaviors in ways that transform us from glory to glory into the very likeness of Jesus himself. Is that amazing grace or what? That's the package deal right there of the triune God in your life. The Father saying, you'll never please me more than you do today because I attribute to you my pleasure in my Son. The son saying, you will never sin beyond what I have already paid for and covered with my blood, and I will intercede for you from now until you go to glory. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm living in you to bring together the broken pieces to transform you into God's original creative order, created in the likeness of God. That's amazing grace. When Paul was writing to the church at Rome, he anticipated a question that some might have after after a talk like this. He said, some of you will be thinking now that if we really live like this, we'll get sloppy because we can live like hell and still go to heaven. He said, no, no, that's not the case at all. And he makes his comments specific when he writes to Jude in chapter 3 when he says this. You want to know something about God's amazing grace? His grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's like the story of the woman, a sinner, publicly known and judged as such, and came to Jesus and treated Jesus with honor and respect as she wept and as she washed his feet. And Jesus looked to the religious folks around who made the formula, grace plus my stuff. And he said to them, who loves the most? The one who's been most forgiven. This morning, how forgiven have you needed to be? And how forgiven do you need to be? Let me ask a couple of questions and let's do it this way. This is a very public space. Could we try to make just a private space for a moment by closing our eyes? Time for you and God together. I've been talking, but as I have and far beyond my words, the Holy Spirit has been talking to every person here today, which means there's something for each of us to learn or something for each of us to respond to today. What's he saying to you? Let me ask two questions. The first of this, do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, as Lord and Savior? It's a belief question. Do you believe? 
Right now, everyone has their eyes closed. If you are a believer in Jesus, maybe like me, you made that decision 50 years ago. Maybe you made it last weekend. Maybe you're one of the 25 kids that made that decision this Wednesday night here. Maybe you're making the decision this morning. But if you are a believer, I believe in Jesus Christ, just lift your hand right now. It's you and God. Just all across the room, probably almost everyone here will raise their hand. Go ahead and put your hand down. The second question is, do you accept the gift of God's amazing grace? Like the Bible says, even the demons believe and shudder. All the spiritual world knows that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he's the way to the Father. Have you made that personal? Accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Just now again, you and God across the room. If you are one who's received his amazing grace, just lift your hand. And maybe today you're receiving his grace for the first time. Raise your hand as well. Go ahead and put it down. Would you pray this prayer with me? And I'll give a phrase and then repeat it boldly after me, all of us together. God, thank you for loving me. Together, God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Holy Spirit, thank you for living in me. Thank you that I am loved, that I am accepted, that I am forgiven, and that I am filled. Help me follow you passionately every day of my life for your honor and glory in Jesus' name.